want to talk to you about leading a what's this kind of life. This is an argument against assimilation, assimilation of various kinds. We should be leading a life which causes other people to say, what's this? Our lives should be different from the lives of everyone around us in a different and a redemptive way. Not in a weird, quirky way. We have a lot of that nowadays, where people who claim the name of Yeshua are behaving in ways that other people find strange and off-putting. I want to say, uh, sure, people have a right to live anywhere they want. It's not my business. But I have a right as a servant of God to say that when we lead lives that appear strange and off-putting to people who don't believe as we do, we are being very negligent. And it's not something that we should excuse. Now, all of this grows out of a certain aspect of today's lesson. So let's take a look. What should be the evidence of our faith? As we walk amongst the uh, people, as we live in the world, uh, what is the evidence that we are Yeshua's people? Should it be how we dress in fundamentalistic uh, cultures? Uh, there was a time where you could really tell uh, women who were members of that fellowship, their dresses were down to the ankles. They wore no makeup and uh, their hair had to be very simple. They didn't wear any jewelry. Is that, is that the way that God wants us to be recognizable as his people? Is it how we vote that makes us his people? A lot of people think this. I've been told and I've read on Facebook that if you don't vote, if you didn't vote for uh, Mr. Trump in the last election, you're not a believer. Now, am I kidding you? I'm not kidding you. I'm not telling you how to vote. And I'm not criticizing how you vote. But I am criticizing the mentality that says that what should distinguish us in the world, what commends our faith to other people is how we vote. I don't think so. I think God calls us higher. How about who we hate? There are plenty of people who uh, judge judge the authenticity of your faith by if you're against the same people they are. Do you hate the LGBTQ people? Do you hate people who get abortions? Do you hate Democrats? Do you hate George Soros? Am I kidding? I'm not kidding. But this is a disgrace. This is not what the Bible calls us to. This is American Yeshua-believing culture, but our culture is not God's culture. Is it our hot-button issues, as I mentioned before? Is that what identifies us as the people of God? Is that what should identify us? I don't think so. What should be the evidence of our faith? Peter puts it beautifully. He says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, 
even if they accuse you of voting wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. What's the heart of this? We should live properly. We should live with honorable behavior that is so conspicuous that it causes other people to fall in with us, to join our group, because they recognize that we are different in a compelling way. That's what should be evidence of our faith. But here's the conclusion of a demographic study done by the Barna, the Barna Group, the George Barna Group, which specializes in, in demographic studies of evangelical believers and comparisons to the rest of culture. Discussing a 2003 survey of, 100, of 1,003 randomly selected people, George Barna, the directing leader of the Barna Group, noted that many Christians and Messianic Jews, I might say, are hard-pressed to convert their beliefs into action. Here's what he said. The ultimate aim of belief in Jesus is not simply to possess divergent theological ideas, but to become a transformed person. These statistics highlight the fact that millions of people who rely on Yeshua for their eternal destiny have problems translating their religious beliefs into action beyond Sunday, or I might say, beyond Saturday mornings. And if you read, if you go on, on Google and look up Barna Group and read some of the things, read the Pew studies about comparison of evangelical believers and the rest of the culture, it'll, it'll aggravate you because here's the secret. There's hardly any difference. And that's not what God calls us to. He doesn't call us to be a mirror to the greater society. He causes us to be a portrait of something else. So let's talk about the Mazet principle. It means what's this? Living lives that contradict expectations and that honor God. Living lives that surprise people in a good way and that honor God. We see this um, telegraphed in today's lesson a number of times. The blood on the doorposts that we read about, it's, it's a very unusual thing. And why was it done? For a number of reasons. And I won't go into all of them now. But one of the reasons was that our children should ask, what is this? And that gives us an occasion to give a redemptive explanation about how God passed through the land of Egypt and he, he slew all the firstborn of Egypt and that we went free. So there should be something about our lives that causes people to say, what is this? Explain this to me. And it should be a situation where as we give that explanation, it reflects well upon our faith and upon our God. It shouldn't be weirdness. It should be compelling, magnetic attractiveness, holiness. Another example is the redemption of the firstborn, Pidjon Haben. 
This is mentioned in chapter 13, which we read today. And it says that the reason it's done is as a reminder of what God did with the firstborn children in Egypt 3,400 years ago. Again, this is something different. It is something that stands out in which when you give an explanation about why we do this, it reflects well on God. Our lives should be the kind of lives that have differences in them, which cause people to inquire redemptively about our faith. It shouldn't be questions about, why are you people so stupid? Why are you people so strange? Why do all of you vote this way? That doesn't, that, that, that doesn't get the job done. That's not what scripture is saying. Here's another example from our reading today. Came at the end of the reading. Wearing tefillin, wrapping leather straps around your arm uh, with a box of scripture uh, in, in there on your bicep and on your head. What is that? Um, some people say that that's really only a metaphor for the fact that we should bind God's commandments on our mind and on our hand. Okay, I'll accept that. But either way, there should be something about our lives that is strange to other people, redemptively strange. But I'm afraid that's not the case. I don't mean to be, to sound harshly critical, but I am seriously concerned, and I think you are too. Uh, at Passover time, this is the fourth thing that's mentioned in our reading today. At Passover time, the question is, why do we eat this matzah for a whole week? There's a reason we do that. It's, it's to remind ourselves of the poor bread that we ate when we, were when we were escaping from slavery. But it's also an occasion to explain the story of God's redemptive work. So there you see on your screen four examples of behaviors that God gave to the Jewish people which made us appear strange to other people, even to our own children, but which give occasion to glorify God. We should all be this kind of person, a mazer person, a person whom others will inquire in a friendly manner, how come? Again, I'm not talking about weirdness. I'm talking about wholesomeness, holiness, wholeness. The Mazet principle, living lives that contradict expectations and honor God. We see this reflected in scripture, living so as to provoke questions that occasion answers that bring reliable and credible honor to God. That's what the principle is. Living so as to provoke questions that occasion answers that bring relatable that means they can relate to it, and credible honor to God. Now, this is not the principle of what I call restrained exceptionalism. That is, living in ways that please us, should be please us, but causes others to think we are crazy. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14. He says to the Corinthians, suppose when you're all getting together, 
and all of you are speaking in tongues simultaneously and having the grandest time, suppose an unbeliever comes in or a person who's not initiated, who doesn't understand these things comes in. He says, won't I say you're crazy? He says, don't do that. We should not be different in a way that causes people to say that we're crazy. We should not feel like martyrs if they do. If we are acting in ways that seem crazy to other people, we need to examine ourselves and see, um, am I really behaving in the way that Yeshua would have me behave? Am I a magnet for the kingdom? It's a good question. Yeshua talks about this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we should taste salty. We should, we should have a flavor about us that is a flavor that people want. Salt was very precious in the ancient world. Here's another metaphor he uses. These are both from Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Light is different from darkness. Light does us a lot of good. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works. That's what the light is. It's not, uh, any, it's not our quirkiness. It's, it's good works. Let your light shine before others so they may see your redemptive, positive, helpful, compassionate lifestyle and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying exactly what Peter says in First Peter. So here's an assessment I dug up, written by a scholar, uh, giving a summary of the way early believers impressed the uh, ancient world. Uh, Steve, would you read this, please? If you can. Sure. Yeah. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the ur urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of so social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services for what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Okay, there's a, if you read some of the ancient sources, they marvel that the, the, the Christians 
took care not only of their own dead, but they took care of other people's dead. They buried people. They took care of the sick. They, 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 they showed the same compassion to people who were outside of their group as they showed to one another. And this baffled the, the sophisticated pagan, but it also impressed the ancient world. So how will we commend the good news? Is it gonna be in how we dress? I don't think that's good enough. Is it gonna be how we vote? With all due respect, vote as you please, but that's not what's gonna get the job done. Is it on who we hate? Certainly not gonna get the job done. Is it gonna be our hot button issues that commend us to the outside world and commend the gospel? No, it's gonna be how we live. Paul expressed this. We've been studying 2 Corinthians in our Wednesday night Bible study. And 2 Corinthians, Paul states this so beautifully. He says, for what we are proclaiming is not ourselves. What we are proclaiming is the Messiah, Yeshua, as Lord, with ourselves as slaves for you because of Yeshua. Or if you prefer as servants, do other people see you, see me as their servants? Do they see us as people who are ministering to their needs? Do they see us as people who notice their pain? Do they see us as people who are interested in seeing them have a better life? How do people who don't believe as we do see us? It's an important question. And that's what we've been looking at today. God, first, we want to thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your word has nailed us today. It has given us so much to think about. You have shown us the path of life. Help us to be people, Lord God, who will do such good works in the world, whose lives will be so attractive, so magnetic, so caring, that will cause other people to glorify you on the day when you deliver us, when you, uh, when you visit us. May we be magnets. May we not repel people. May we not judge people. May we attract them. And may we preach not ourselves, but Messiah Yeshua as Lord. And may we present ourselves to them as servants of their need in Yeshua's name. We ask this with thanksgiving and ask that your spirit would cause these holy seeds to germinate in our hearts and community. Amen.